From Given, this is Purposing, the podcast that lifts the lid on how to run a truly purpose-driven business. I'm Becky Willen, and with the help of leaders from some of the world's most recognized brands, I'll be demystifying this often misunderstood topic into clear, actionable advice you can use in your own business. This week, I'm joined by Peter Simpson, CEO of Angling Water, a position he's held for almost 10 years. He's a huge advocate for purpose-driven business and is actively involved in pioneering work with business in the community and the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership. Through this conversation, you'll learn how to reorientate your business around the role you play in the world, create and hardwire a management system for purpose, build the behaviours that create a purposeful culture. Before I speak with Peter, let's take a quick look back at his career to learn how he became one of the most well-respected, purpose-driven business leaders in the UK. The very first exposure I had to Anglian Water was the fact my dad used to work for Anglian Water. Each morning, Peter saw his dad head off to work there and made a real impression on him. I thought at the time, this is a, an organisation that does stuff that makes a difference, that you can see what you do on a daily basis, you can see you make a difference, and that, that appealed to me. Peter went on to study chemistry at university, and after completing his degree, he almost took a job at Pfizer. But then I realised that I wasn't a terribly good chemist, and probably that wasn't going to be brilliant, and I probably wouldn't like it too much. Instead, he joined Anglian Water in 1989, when the company was on the cusp of privatisation. He began working in the labs during his summer breaks. During the, my time in the laboratories, I was exposed to operations, which is the heart of a water company, really the bit where the rubber really does hit the road. And I met lots of frontline leaders running the operations of the business. And I thought, that's where I'd like to be. That's where it all kicked off, really. And uh, I've never looked, I suppose even at that point, I probably didn't think I would be here all these years later. Yeah, it's certainly the best decision, or one of the best decisions I've ever made. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Could you start by setting the scene for us? So. When did the purpose journey really start for Anglian Water? And what happened to convince you to really rethink your role in the world as a water company? Well, I suppose we've always thought we've got a particularly special responsibility as a monopoly provider of essential services. And for, for many, many years, and probably since uh, the organisation ever existed, we kind of just said that was about water, it was about environment, but in a probably quite a narrow perspective. I think it was probably in the mid-2000s when we realised that actually as an organisation we ought to have a broader role. And I think it was probably the emerging climate crisis which made us start thinking again about what role we played. Uh, we ought to be thinking beyond the sort of narrow confines of just water. And we ought to be thinking about, well, what are we doing, not just to adapt to the impact of climate change, but also what should we be doing in terms of showing leadership more broadly on mitigation and it's no good us just sitting here in the east of England and saying well let's just adapt to what's coming what are we doing in terms of leading in terms of reducing our emissions and and, and that started I suppose the, the realization that there's a much broader role for business um, and it absolutely isn't just about essentially what it says on the tin uh, or providing um, returns to shareholders it's much more it's much broader and I think a, a big part of that sort of purpose transformation is about thinking differently, but that's got to be followed up by acting differently too. And I know that's something that um, has been a big part of, of your transformation journey over the last sort of 
15 years or so. So can you describe some of the, the, the big shifts, I guess, that that led to, I guess, both in terms of mindset and thinking, but also in terms of kind of acting and, and doing things differently as an organisation? Yeah, I, I guess the first thing to say around this is it's not easy. Um, I mean, anything anything I'm talking to you about, if, I, if it comes across that this is a nice linear process and it's all very straightforward and you know, things slot into place very logically, uh, you know, it doesn't work like that. We realised that as a, we had to have a broader role and we coined the term and, and the mantra around love every drop, you know, angling water, love every drop. It became the the mantra for the organisation and, and people at the time thought we were nuts, actually. I mean, it, it's sounds a bit odd now but at the time using for a water company scientists and technicians and engineers using the word love in in all of its publicity seemed really out there what we were trying to do is to recognize the fact that we needed to create an emotional connection with what is ultimately one of the most precious resources we've got water and that was important that's been important on the purpose journey because you know we're what we're trying to do here is to demonstrate that you know, we need to do lots of things ourselves, but we need to take lots of people with us. That was an early revelation, really. Was, you know, we realised that we had to get more people involved in this journey about what we were going to do to improve the water environment, what we were going to do to conserve the water environment. We could not do it on our own. But how do you actually kind of get action? How do you make that real for people? And what we did was we set what were called at the time big, hairy, audacious goals. How do we put some big goals under this overall sort of mantra that demonstrate there's tangible stuff going to be going on one of them was uh halving the capital carbon so halving the embodied carbon in everything we build and taking 20 percent of the cost out so we tied together this idea of making things more efficient and ultimately driving a financial engine together with how do we actually reduce our carbon impact and it was a massive thing and if i bring that to the current day, we've just hit 63% lower. So that objective was set as a macro objective, but then we enshrined it down within the organisation to make sure everybody understood it was serious and it linked through to the overall purpose of what we were trying to achieve. That example is is such a powerful one to demonstrate that this isn't about a kind of logo, a strapline or, or a statement, but about driving real change in the business. And I think it's clear from that example that the kind of the impact on the business, but Sort of what impact did that have on the people who were responsible for helping to realise that goals? You know, what was the experience of someone in the business who was suddenly sort of tasked with this huge, hairy, audacious, purpose-driven goal to, to help you achieve? The key thing really was, if you take that particular example, is it encouraged people to engage with a bigger objective when you started saying things like, well, actually, we want you to think different. We're doing this because actually we recognise we can't continue using the same amount of carbon in things we're operating and things we're building. We want you engaged in that. This is why. This is the big picture. This is where the climate's going. We want to be, we want to be part of that. We also want to, you know, we want to drive the financial engine of the organisation as well. Now, what that, what that did was it, it forced our engineers and our supply chain to think differently. You couldn't do incremental change in that respect. You couldn't bring incremental solutions. So it drove a lot of innovation, a lot of genuine engineering, but it also drove alignment across the supply chain. So we, in building the sort of structures in the organisation, we made sure that the commercial models you know, drove this as well and aligned with what we were trying to do here. It was tough, though, because there were an awful lot of projects came across the desk which were 
you know, we've done a great job. It's 15% reduced carbon or and 5% off the cost. And it took a lot of nerve to basically say, no, no, no. And, you know, keep pushing back and saying, well, that's great. But, you know, we, what else can we do? Yeah, brilliant. And I think recently you've sort of slightly expanded the, the uh, articulation of Love Every Drop to give a bit more of a, I guess, a bit more specificity and a more kind of comprehensive perspective on what that means. So could you talk a little bit about why you felt that that was important to do and I guess where you've got to? Because I think that specific idea about the role that you play for the region, I think, is a really interesting one. Our purpose statement now is all about bringing environmental and social prosperity to the region we serve through our commitment to Love of Redrop. So we haven't lost Love of Redrop. That's a really important part of it. But what's happened now is we've framed it very much in terms of uh, environmental and social prosperity and the region that we serve. It's been a, a rallying call to everybody in the organisation to understand what, what's it about, what are the most fundamental things to, to us as an organisation. And at the end of the day, if, if our region isn't being successful in its broadest sense, then we're not successful. If we think about the sort of BHAGs that I talked about in terms of lovery drop, you know, we've now got a 25-year strategic direction statement that sits like beneath that. And it brings out sort of four big themes and it brings out themes like resilience, which are has, has been a really big push for us because that was the other side of, you know, thinking about a changing climate, how to become resilient to drought and flood. So we've got a very clear statement around that. We enshrine our ambition around uh, achieving net zero in a you know, long term strategic direction statement. We enshrine a, a clear statement about improving the ecological quality of the catchments in which we operate. Um, and we've got a statement in there which is about enabling uh, sustainable economic and housing growth in the region, sustainable being the key word. But again, that, all of those things link back. So you've then got a, a purpose statement, but then there's a 25-year strategic direction statement signed off by the board about what we're doing. So whatever we're doing in our price reviews and all the other machinations of business plans, we're thinking, what's the purpose? And what are the headline, high level, highest level objectives, strategic ambitions we're trying to achieve? And, and they're caught within four things. And we, and we tie everything to those. Yeah. And I think in, in our experience, having that level of clarity about, I guess, what you might call the sort of the, the architecture of purpose in the business is, is really important. But I guess it's only as effective as the extent to which it's been operationalized, you know, and that is, as you said, a sort of a, a huge transformation in, in itself. And I think th there's obviously no kind of one silver bullet. It takes time and it takes effort. And I think, you know, recognizing that this is a, a new thing for many businesses, there's no playbook for how you get it right. So the appetite for kind of testing and learning and sometimes not getting it right first time is really important. So I guess when we think about sort of how you hardwire a purpose into decision making, you know, what have you found works and and also i guess really importantly is there anything that you've tried that didn't have the impact that you thought it would in terms of enabling people to really make decisions that were driven by this idea of of environmental social prosperity for the region i mean th this is where the rubber hits the road and it's hard it is hard um there's no question about that when we talk about you know how does it come to life well it's about making sure we've got the frameworks that we actually need within the business so when we're making investment decisions we use for example a six capitals approach so we've got a six capitals framework that enables us to 
develop baselines and measure what we mean by lots of um, what are sometimes airy-fairy concepts. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to decide, are you going to build this or that, you have to have a means of understanding what the trade-offs are and what the balance is and go into those decisions very clearly. So you might make a decision on an investment on an asset that um, is perhaps less good in terms of the social contribution it makes than the uh, natural capital contribution it makes, for example. We have to be clear about that because when you make your next decision on the next asset, you're looking to say, well, how do we, how do we make sure on balance that we're still addressing all of these things? And there's a lot of discussion at the moment about biodiversity. The reality, of course, is there's money you can spend in certain areas to make a huge impact on increasing biodiversity. And there's an awful lot of money you can spend making very little difference. You know, we did a, a huge exercise of across the whole region, said, well, where do you get where do you get the best bang for your investment in this particular area of biodiversity? We would never have thought of doing that work in the first place had we not been thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we often find that those frameworks are really important for helping people make deliberate decisions about purpose. But then also, I think they're really important to help explain why decisions are made to to people who might be looking at a decision and, and saying, well, why did we prioritise the kind of, you know, biodiversity over a social contribution? And I think having a really clear framework for being able to explain decisions as well, I think, you know, we found really important as well. I think the other thing that you mentioned was around uh, the the work or or the conversations that you had with your suppliers and your supply chain as well. So can you talk a little bit about sort of how you've been able to hardwire your purpose into how you work with suppliers and the contribution that sort of they've made to this transformation as well? Yeah, it's, it's a really important point. Uh, they are, they have been and, and continue to be absolutely pivotal to this. You know, we can't do this on our own. You know, one of the big things we did many years ago was set up alliances. And the biggest one of which is something called the At One Alliance. And it's a fantastic organisation because and I, I suppose what we fundamentally did was we need to be joined at the hip with these organisations over a longer period of time. So we contracted initially for 10 years and then over 15 years. To, to sort of chart a way forward, which it gave, I suppose, those organisations more latitude to align with what we were trying to do and invest in it. This is organisations like Balfour BT and Bar Hale and Skanska. The selection of all of those organisations has been based on whether we believe they're broadly aligned with kind of what we're about. Those organisations came with us on the journey and they couldn't be successful unless we jointly actually achieve the objectives of, say, halving the capital carbon and, and reducing the cost. They couldn't be successful. It meant that we had to change what our expectations were as well. And it, it was no good us saying, well, we will only accept concrete square things and these you know, these assets in the same way. Um, if actually we've got a supply chain coming on saying, well, hang on, I know you've done it this way for 25 years, but what about? What about doing it this way? What about, hey, you know, natural capital solutions? What about thinking about uh, not just building us being employed to build concrete tanks. What about using the environment? What about treatment wetlands? You know, what about those? What are there opportunities there to enhance biodiversity? Really contribute back to nature, achieve the water quality objectives, create amenity value, and then when you evaluate it on six capitals, you go, oh well, 
well, cap, intellectual capital, yeah, big tick, natural capital, big tick, social capital, big tick. Oh, guess what? Financial capital, it works because it's a better overall whole life cost solution. So they, they've been absolutely pivotal on the journey. And, and without them, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do it. And it's great to hear about the successes. And I think that's a very sort of powerful example of many of them. Is there anything that hasn't worked in the way that you hoped when it comes to really sort of embedding and operationalizing purpose across the organization? I can think of small examples of where it's not worked, but I, I think the biggest challenge has been actually the time it's taken. I suspect many of us were, were quite ambitious about the pace at which we wanted to go, but the reality is these things take time. And the thing that's been you know, difficult on the journey has been you know, making sure we've got everybody on board and taking them on the journey with us. Getting buy into stuff is the most important thing. Mm, and I think the recognition that this is such a systemic challenge and opportunity, it's not just about collaborating with your supply chain, you know, bringing your people on the journey, working differently with communities, but you know, regulators and all stakeholders who make up the system have to be on board for this to actually deliver the, the level of impact that I, I think you're kind of seeking to create here. Yes, exa exactly. And that's one of the reasons we put quite a lot of effort into working with uh, BSI actually on this PAS, so this, this specification for what it, what it means to be a purpose-led company. And I was a bit worried about it, to be honest, very early on, because inherently I wasn't sure it was the right way to go. Because I suppose I, I started way back, you know, we've got lots of, uh, of standards for how we operate. And I started back in the days of British Standard 5750. And I, and I remember how badly we as a company implemented that right way back when, going back a lot of history. And I thought, hmm, I could just see how we, you know, this, this could be a real problem. Actually, I think the way it's been done is excellent. And uh, yeah, I think the framework there is just set at the right level. And it, you know, going to the point about, this podcast, that's a good place to go and have a look at the sorts of things that you need to put in place when you're setting out to be a purpose-driven company. Because it isn't, it isn't about that strap line at the top. It is actually about how do you develop that purpose that everybody does buy into and really gets the link to the, the macro things that are affecting your organization and what it is that drives you and that financial engine, the commercials of it. So it, it fits and everybody goes, if we I can see if we're in that place that's good in the overall macro context. But then it also does go down to the other things that you need to have, whether that be in terms of some of the frameworks we're talking about or what it means in terms of you know, leadership. And Anglia Mortal is one of the sort of founding partners for the creation of that standard that launched, I think, fairly recently up with the, with the BSI. One of the other things that you've done, which I think a lot of people have seen as really impressive, is hardwiring your purpose to the extent that you've enshrined um, that idea of uh, environmental social prosperity into your articles of association. So the legal document that sets out your responsibilities as a business. So how did that come about? And, and, and I guess more importantly, what impact has it had, do you hope it will have for the business's ability to be a kind of truly purpose-driven organisation? So for us, um, because we've been on the journey from Love Every Drop and then we'd already set out what our purpose was and all of which was was supported and bought into by our board from day one. When it got to, well, actually, do you know, should we change the Articles Association? The answer was, well, actually, yes. But will it fundamentally change all of the things that we're doing? Well, we'd already changed them. We'd already changed them. So why do it then? And the why do it is, is very much about being clear with everybody about 
what it's about. It's about having it on the boilerplate of the company, really, so that uh, you know we are owned by essentially pension funds, but ownership can change. So it's really clear. If anybody buys the company, we're a private company, anybody buys us, it, that's what it says. That's what the article says. This is what we're about. It's really, really clear. And if you like, the most fundamental constitutional document that's there. And, and our current owners are going, yeah, that's absolutely how it, how it should be. Um, it, it underlines the seriousness with which we take it, because essentially what we're doing there is we are creating very clear duties for directors that say, you know, you have to. It's not an option. You have to consider these things in your in your decision. So it isn't a, purely about 172 shareholders. It's actually about the community. It's about the environment and it's about the owners of the business, the shareholders. Yeah, I think that's such a great insight. And I guess I think you've touched on this as well around the kind of the idea that transparency uh, and accountability are both really important hallmarks of purpose-driven businesses. So I guess I had a question about who's ultimately responsible for holding you to account as CEO when it comes to delivering your purpose and how does that really work in practice? Because I think we're seeing the kind of the evolution of governance around purpose as being something that I think hasn't been looked at in as much detail as it needs to. So how does how does that work at Anglian Water? So we've done a number of things. So we did a lot of work with business in the community and they have something called a responsible business tracker, which is a really good way of looking at all the various dimensions of what, what it means to be a responsible business. What you can do is you can do a gap analysis, really, and you can sort of do your radar diagram and you can say, well, yeah, we thought we were really good at this dimension. Actually, we're not. And, and more important than that, perhaps, is that then you can see who are the companies who are doing more. And, you know, if you're part of that, you know, business in the community, you can go and talk to those companies and learn. When we're having conversations with customers through our customer board, or we're having conversations through some of the assurance groups we have around price reviews and all that sort, this is all on the table at the same time. It's all it, it's all available. It's all open. It's all completely transparent, and it enables you to show you know what's going well, what's not going well. Yeah, I think we've touched a little bit on culture already, but I think uh, in most organisations there's usually a sort of default mindset around decision-making that's based either on cost or risk or sort of combination of the two. And I think what you've shown is that actually over time, it's really possible to change that mindset and help people make decisions based on a different set of priorities. But I think in our experience, a big part of how you do that, especially at the kind of outset, is giving people evidence and kind of examples of, of what's possible. So, you know, often within organizations, you have examples of these sort of totemic actions that have really built belief. You know, was that an important part of your journey? And, and if it was, what, what were the sort of totemic things that have really helped demonstrate to people that a different way of running the business is, is possible? You know, we've done huge commitments around smart metering and big transfer schemes and things which demonstrate that that sort of strategic direction statement commitment to building resilience isn't just a set of nice words there's stuff that's being done you know we embarked uh, quite a few years ago on looking at where the, the social challenges in the region were and the most was the fens and right in the heart of the fens the, the, the town of Wisbeach was having all kinds of issues Transport connections were pretty awful. The issues of unemployment were, were there, youth unemployment, some of the third generation unemployment, a whole raft of things. 
And we said, well, we can't solve everything for everybody, but if we were going to focus our efforts, how, how might we shift the dial? And rather than just angling going, we went in with our entire supply chain and we did things you wouldn't have anticipated probably us doing. Very early on, we set out creating a community centre because there was a real need to create some community cohesion. And we carried on with that uh, over the years. We've been partnered with Withbeach Beach for many years now. And it's led to us you know, working with the town on developing a vision for the future. It's meant we've developed a, a, a really powerful collaboration with a college, uh, College of West Anglia, where we recruit all of the um, construction uh, apprentices for our alliances. That's where we started recruiting all of our construction apprentices for the alliances from that from this particular college. We developed, co-developed a course with them, then guarantee people opportunities for jobs in, in the supply chain. And that's been a terrific success. And that model actually has now become a model that we've rolled out elsewhere in the country, elsewhere in our region. Now, we have got engaged with a wide range of players on saying, what do we do for the future of the Fens more broadly? Rather than think about things in the narrow perspective of a water company about public water supply, what do we do to bring in flood risk? Things that aren't traditionally associated with us, they're associated with lots of other agencies and us. How do we bring that together? And, and how do we make sure that as we as a water company build a new reservoir in the Fens, how do we do it in a way that actually enhances not just the availability of water for drinking water, but what can it do for the natural environment? What could it do for the society there? What amenity value can we get out of a new reservoir complex? Can we do it differently? Yeah, yeah. And I think those sort of stories are so powerful in terms of building belief. But I think you've also got to make sure you've got the right environment internally so that everyone can really um, be empowered to sort of put your purpose into practice in the decisions that they're making and in the roles that they play day to day. So it would be great to understand a bit more about what kind of some of the things that you've done to, to foster an environment where that's really possible for people at, at all levels and kind of in every part of the organisation. The reality has been we have posed all of this as opportunity and our Treasury team have done some absolutely incredible work. And they said, well, look, actually, there's a lot of value to an organization like ours having a purpose. You know, we, we borrow a lot of money. We invest a lot of money. So we you know, borrow a lot of money to build things, you know, for the benefit of customers and the environment. But rather than just going out there and saying, well, we'll borrow in the same way we've always done it, our treasurer, uh, Jane Pilcher, went out internationally and started saying, well, no, actually, there are other options here. So we launched a few years ago the very first green bonds for utilities. So going with this whole point about the alignment between purpose and the financial engine of the organisation, what that really meant is better value debt. I'd call it cheaper debt, but she'd call it probably better value. It's made us realise that there's a massive wall of investment that's waiting to go into organisations who get this stuff. Another reflection I'd have is if I went back probably, probably no more than 10 years ago and I thought about some of the presentations that I used to do in London with our CFO to the, the financial community, let's call it in London, talking about our business and talking about you know why why we'd like them to invest in us. It would be a, a sort of t a presentation of two halves. You'd have my bit, which was talking about the overall business and what we're trying to do, and, and during most of that, the, the audience would be shuffling through and, and looking at spreadsheets and various other things, but not not really engaged. No matter what I said, it didn't seem to kind of get too much attention. Uh, and then then as soon as the, the, the presentation from our CFO came up with all the numbers in spreadsheets, and it, there was a huge excitement and, and everybody was away. 
it's totally different now. It is totally different now. Um, that everybody is interested in what we're trying to do, where we're trying to get to, how we're delivering on our purpose, where we're having challenges. That's where the conversation is. And it's more than that, actually, because, uh, you know, when our CFO's talking, you know, I'm talking about that. Our CFO's talking about it. And you know, the numbers kind of evidence what we're doing. But it's not, you know, it's not a bunch of numbers on a sheet and just saying, isn't that interesting? They all, all add up. It's actually, the this is this is what we're saying. This is how the numbers are supporting that. And this is actually why we are, you know, think we've got a good, sustainable business. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I think time and again, we find that leaders within organisations just have such an essential role to play in terms of driving that shift. But I think that does come with a, a different set of expectations from leaders within an organisation. So I was wondering how you've supported your leaders through this journey and, and really, I guess, specifically thinking about that leadership community, how you've empowered them to make decisions differently. And I guess what that difference really looks like, you know, in terms of your expectations, say, compared to sort of 10 years ago when you took over as, as CEO. I mean, I think when you come into Anglian, and, and you'll know this because you, you've known us in the, in the past, you, you can feel a different culture. You can feel the culture. Uh, it doesn't normally take people very long to go, actually, we like we like it here. We like the way people work. We like we like actually that what you know the people are broadly pointing in the, in the same direction and they're pretty clear about what they want to do. We like the values, the values of the organisation. Together, we aim to build trust. We aim to do the right thing, and we aim to always be exploring. And those values again tie very much to the purpose and underline it when we're bringing people in and we're appointing people. We're thinking about those things when we're talking about to our teams about what's important. We're, we're talking about, well, what are you doing in those values? It's very deliberately written as together we, you know, together we build trust. Well, together, that's very much about the collaboration, saying we do not want a contract to client relationship in this organisation. We, we're part of a very embedded partnership. And that means we have to work together. We have to trust each other. And ultimately, you know, we expect people in the business to do the right thing. We expect over above everything else, we want people to do the right thing. We're, we want to be an organisation where everybody feels they can do the right thing. It's not easy. At the moment, despite what we're trying to do, uh, there are lots of constraints on, if you like, how we can achieve our environmental ambition. So simple examples would be, you know, to achieve the ecological status of rivers in the east of England that we want to achieve, we've got to do that in a way with others. You know, we cannot do that on our own as a water company. We've got to be engaging with landowners, farmers. We've got to be engaging with highways authorities. We've got to be engaging with local planning authorities. And I'd like to see over the next few years, this organisation moving into a very different place where actually you know, we're taking a landscape approach to what we're trying to do to improve the environment and using some of the building blocks we've, we've got. But I'd like to see us help to see regulation change to enable us to do that. And I think through that, that will really open up our environmental ambition to the next level. Brilliant. Peter, it's been such a pleasure having you on Purposing. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Peter. Lots of really brilliant insight there. So here are a few things that I've taken from the conversation. Don't be afraid to set big, hairy, audacious and long-term goals to create a clear and stretching vision of what putting your purpose into practice actually looks like. It will give you the permission to do things you've never done before and drive entirely new ways of working. 
There's no silver bullet for operationalizing your purpose, but a small number of totemic actions build belief and really help hardwire your purpose into your business. Whether it's about governance, metrics, processes, or incentives, start by focusing on the one or two things that will genuinely drive change in decision-making. As ever, leadership is essential to creating purpose-driven change within any organization. Give your leaders the tools and training, not only to make purpose-driven decisions, but to tell powerful stories about the why, what, and how of the decisions they make day to day. We'll put links to the BSI standard on purpose-led business and BITC's responsible business tracker in the show notes, so you can take a look at some of the tools Peter mentioned for yourself. If you'd like more practical advice on building a purpose-driven business with brilliant insight from people like Peter, download the Insider's Guide to Purpose at givenagency.com forward slash insider's guide.